Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Very good evening to you, everybody. And I hope you're all keeping well. Father Brendan Kilcoyne coming to you from the parish house in Athenry in County Galway, as usual. Horrible, cold morning, but a, a lovely, mild evening. And I can't believe that we're out of January already. If I'm not mistaken, there's just the faintest hint of spring. So that's enough to put me in good form anyway. I love spring. I think it must have something to do with getting old, I don't know. The gospel today is, again, very, very powerful. Coming to it, this gospel in Mark 1, coming to it again as we did last week, we're struck by Mark's terse, laconic, energetic style, his emphasis on action. Mark isn't full of doctrinal discourses. They're, what there is is quite brief. It's a gospel of actions. And it's a gospel in which, in a literary sense, the pressure is kept up by the use, as I mentioned before, of that phrase, soon and immediately. He keeps a sense of urgency going. And today we have the scene where Jesus is in Capernaum and he goes into the synagogue and begins to teach and he makes a huge impression on the people there. And what they notice is that unlike the scribes, he teaches with authority. And that's very, very significant. I want, you to, I want you to think a bit about that. He teaches with authority. The scribes were a large and quite a complex class. They included everyone from badly paid copyists to top-earning lawyers. They were probably much more influential uh, in the death of Jesus. Some scribes were Pharisees, but their connection to the Pharisees isn't that close it was his crossing the scribes did him no good at all in an earthly sense. The scribes will pass on religiously the tradition, what they have been given to pass on, and quite properly. And the people are used to that. And in Deuteronomy, in the first reading there, we saw the dire threat against the false prophets, against the one who prophesies in the name of the Lord but does not speak the words he has been given to speak. The Lord is promising to raise up prophets after Moses raise them up from his own people and uh, gives this stern warning about false prophets. And now you have Jesus putting himself in this tremendously lonely position and tremendously dangerous position of looking just like the prophets warned about in Deuteronomy. This is a very dangerous place to be because he is not simply recounting what the tradition says, but he is teaching them with authority. There is a confidence in his teaching that impresses everyone present, but you can be quite sure it will be noted by his enemies as well, and there will be mutterings against him. Now, people are right to be cautious. I mean, this still goes on. People claim to have apparitions and they claim to have visions. You never really know starting out. It's very hard to be sure. People can have all sorts of motives. They may be unstable. They may have been drunk. They may have taken drugs. They may be out for what they can get out of it. They may just want attention. Or a number of those, or maybe all of them. Or they may be genuine. Now, another thing that could be is that the apparition could be demonic. So you simply do not know what you're dealing with. And the church is wise and cautious in dealing with these matters. Very, very cautious. Very slow to give them approbation. All that was said about the witnesses in Knock is that the witnesses were deemed to be trustworthy. It didn't say the apparition happened. That is a matter for the free choice of the faithful. It's not a part of the deposit of faith. You can believe it or not believe it. I personally believe it. 
but you don't have to. You still be a Catholic. So there's really nothing wrong, even from our perspective of followers of Jesus Christ, there is absolutely nothing wrong with people in Jesus' time being cautious and wary in dealing with them at first. There's nothing wrong with that if the Spirit hasn't moved them to recognize them. And he provides elsewhere for the fact that some just don't recognize him. Many don't recognize him and they don't see him for who he is. But some do. What impresses the people there is that authority with which he speaks. And of course he does. I remember when I started out teaching, I was fairly well able to keep a handle on things in the classroom, but the school I was in played a lot of rugby and I knew nothing about rugby. Never was a sportsman anyway. But you were expected to muck in and help. And I remember all making a complete hash of it one evening. And of course the boys... They would pick up very quickly that you didn't really know much about this. But I remember saying it to it very despondently afterwards to another teacher. And he reassured me and said, look, he said, it's not an issue of discipline. You know you can do it in the classroom. He said, it's just that you have to learn the game, learn its rules, become familiar with it. And he added a phrase I've never forgotten. He said, there is nothing like the command of knowing what you're doing. And indeed, modern business people, business theoreticians would say that, you know, expert power is one of these sources of power, is the knowledge of things that other people want to learn or want to know. Nothing like the command of knowing what you're doing. I love watching, uh, you know, a really gifted master tradesman at his work. I actually love listening to him talk. I love listening to people, he or she, I love listening to people who know a lot about something talk about it, if they can speak about it without arrogance or affectation and in comprehensible language, comprehensible to the layman. It's such a pleasure to listen to somebody talk about something about which they know a great deal. Our Lord Jesus Christ contained within himself the sum of all knowledge and wisdom. He was, he embodied it, holy wisdom. And yet he expresses that in parables, using all the teaching methods of the rabbis of his time through a clearly powerful and charismatic human personality. So this is kind of, if you like, this is kind of the human mortal flesh that is put on the spirit of his teachings. It is made comprehensible. When a woman in Knock was asked how did she know that one of the figures was that of St. John, she said that she would know him because he looked just like the statue of St. John in Le Canvey Church. Le Canvey is a little village outside Westport. She had a sister living there. And some people might laugh at that. I don't. I think a mystical experience, God will show people something in a means in which they can understand it. Otherwise, there's no communication. Because language is a matter, surely, of mutually agreed and understood signs. There's no communication, yet God condescends to communicate. God, to put it in very ordinary terms, God has taken the trouble to become flesh. The word made flesh. And Christ stands among his people, his own people, the Jewish people, a master tradesman. Like his father before him, he is a builder and maker and covenant keeper and lifesaver and life giver like his father before him. In other words, he is a true, only begotten son of God. And God is the great craftsman. And God creates covenantally. God creates salvifically. 
God creates with the intention to save. He does not create in vain. He does not create as an idle joke. You were not made as a joke. You're serious because he's serious. And here he stands among us. God stands among us in flesh and bone and blood. He stands among us and teaches us the authority of God. It is the authority that draws the people to him. It is the authority that will save the world. It is the authority that will get him killed. And we have to remember that the people who will be made so suspicious by this effortless confidence of his are not being entirely wrong. They are right to be prudent. They are right to be cautious. They have been warned by their own tradition, their own prophets of the danger of false prophets. God has already warned them of this. It's a dangerous place, he stands. It's a dangerous place. And I suppose you know what's coming next. Because I'm going to say that if we're going to follow him, that's where we have to stand. Because when we teach his teaching, when we are grafted to the vine, when we are a branch of the tree that is him, when we teach his teaching, speak his words, when we act in persona Christi, passing on the faith, when we do that, we teach with the same confidence. This is what makes the saints so magnetic. I told you I was reading some of the lives of the saints lately. I was on Philip Neri and now I'm on John Henry Newman. I've read Apologia again. I never read it properly. I read it and read some of it carefully and skimmed other parts. But this time I've read it properly right through and got a lot out of it. And I'm about halfway through Dom Placid Murray's famous Newman the Oratorium. And I must say I'm enjoying it hugely. And I noticed this in the sense. I noticed this in the sense and it's what makes them so magnetic. I think you see it in Francis. You see it in Teresa. I think you see it in Philip Neri and in Newman. You see it in them. Is they teach with the confidence of the master. I mean, Newman's immaculate prose, his beautiful English prose, in which he lays bare the teachings and passes on what he has been given to teach. I have to point out that, well, you know this is coming anyway, that that's not only demanding, but it's also dangerous. And it's very dangerous nowadays. That confidence that's so startling, that astonished the people listening to him. They were astonished at his gracious words, at his wisdom, at his confidence, his authority. It doesn't make you friends. Well, that's not true. It doesn't make you only friends. And indeed, I'd say it nearly, you could say, it doesn't make you a huge number of friends. And just in the whole scene we're in at the moment, and look, I'm not trying to put you off. Look, I'm just trying to call it. There really is no point in just painting this over and hoping that the paint won't peel too quickly, like, you know, that, that the ugly face underneath won't show. This is what it is. And this is where you have to stand. And this is where you have to teach. And in the second part of that reading, he performs the exorcism on the demon. We're told that the man has an unclean spirit, pneuma akatharton, an unclean spirit. The Greeks would have said daimon or daemon, but the pneuma akatharton, that's a translation of Semitic phrase, an unclean spirit. Now remember, it wasn't just something immoral or anything like that that made something unclean. There were a whole load of things that could make something unclean. 
anything that was out of kilter, anything that was out of God's plan, anything that was asymmetrical, so to speak, that was broken, even a physical disfigurement created uncleanliness. It's not the same concept that we think it is, but it is a negative. Yes, it's a negative, definitely, an unclean spirit. Some scripture scholars will say, you know, Jesus was just very good at curing people who are mentally ill and this kind of thing. But, yeah, exorcists will tell you that most of the people coming to them, their problem is psychological and they pass them on for counselling. But they will tell you also that some people are demonically possessed and that there is no way in which some people could possibly know or have the talents or experience or knowledge that they express speaking in demonic terms. Exorcists will tell you that they've seen very strange and very frightening things and and heard them. And here, the demoniac, the possessed man, what is in him is appalled at the figure of Jesus. And he says to Jesus, what is there between you and us? And that's again a translation of a Semitic phrase, which was dismissal. It put a huge space between the speaker and his interlocutor. What is there between you and us? If it were an Italian, they'd make the rude gesture of the back of the hand moved against the the bottom of the chin, sharply, outwardly. It's a rude, extremely ill-mannered dismissal. What is there between you and us? And he addresses him as Jesus of Nazareth. But in fact, some commentators would say that's better translated as Jesus, you Nazarene. It's much more hostile than that, Jesus of Nazareth. And it's basically the demon is saying to him, blank off, you bogger, from the back end of beyond. But the demon betrays himself and then goes on to say, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. No, it's not said as a compliment. And Jesus rebukes him. He rebukes him. And he basically tells him that a proper translation would be shut up. Shut your mouth. Put a spoke in it, okay? You know, shut your duck house. It's abrupt, brutal. Shut up and then come out of him, you know? And the demon throws his host into convulsions and comes out. So Jesus astounds the crowd yet again. He astounds them with his authority. He commands demons and he does it even without shouting, without any huge effort. He silences them. He commands them as he will later command the wind and the waves. If we're willing to meditate on this, this is a tremendous meeting with the God of power. This is real power. This is power. This is what some have sold their souls for. And like a moth to the flame, they have it briefly and then they explode into flame. This is power. This is God speaking absolute objective truth, teaching absolute reality in comprehensible terms, homely, comprehensible language, but obviously at the same time elegant and gracious language to his listeners. This is Jesus speaking like a sergeant major to a demon. Shut up, out of him, on your way. And he orders them out. I think it's crucial that you come into contact with this Jesus. Because if you're going to be misled by the sickly, sweet, huggy bear Jesus that's often passed off to us, you're being shortchanged. You won't have confidence in God. You lose your faith. The world will take your faith from you. The world is hard. 
if you were to face the world on your own, teaching with confidence, if you were to face the world, you must have something deeper than that. You can only have the strength to do that if you have met with the living God. Moses knew God face to face. You must meet with the Christ, who is God on earth, teaching and commanding the demons to quit, to leave. You can only do that if you have met with this Christ, the Christ of power. You see, the trouble is that if you're drowning in the water, it's no use to you that there's somebody on the bank shouting consoling words to you. That's no use to you. But telling you apologetically that they would help, but they can't swim. You don't need somebody who's kind in a moment like that. You need somebody who can save you. I remember saying to a doctor once, you know, I said, is there not too much emphasis placed on these huge points to get into medicine? Aren't aspects of character important too and everything? And he agreed with me. But he said, the trouble is, he said, in the work we do, what's absolutely crucial is that the doctor knows what he's doing. And if he doesn't know what he's doing, you're in trouble. So he should be kind. It's much more helpful if he's kind. It creates uh, confidence in the patient, every, all that. But he must know what he's doing. He must have the command of knowing what he's doing. Who knows what they do more than the supreme tradesman, the great artificer, God in Jesus Christ. Now, can I give you any examples of what you're going to be asked for here? Because, you know, if you don't deepen your relationship with them, and I'm, go I'm going to say to you yet again that spending time in adoration is one great way to do it. Prayer, obviously, but prayer can take different forms. Prayer in front of the Blessed Sacrament is tremendous. Prayer in front of the exposed, the prisoner in the tabernacle, the exposed prisoner. Prayer in front of he who has become a prisoner for your sake who has put himself in your power, that prayer is powerful. You need his power, but you can only receive that power through humility, through love, through kindness, through an apprenticeship of gentleness. Paradoxically, it is only in that that you can meet him. Only in that. This ferocious gentleness of his, this powerful kindness, this terrible beauty in Yeats' phrase. These things can all be yours. They can all be yours. But they will cost not less than everything. In the words of Eliot. Costing not less than everything. You must meet him. And you must hand your whole life over to him. And that's easier said than done. You can only do this with his grace. Can I give you examples of people? I've watched with deep respect and have been deeply impressed by Dr. William Lane Craig, one of the great Christian apologists of our time. Highly intellectual man, a great controversialist, debater, persuader. Uh, he's a Protestant, very friendly to Catholicism. Uh, he acknowledges, by the way, his debt to Thomas Aquinas. I think that's an example, and I go right outside the Catholic Church for it. But let's come inside the Catholic Church. I'm just making the point that there are people in good faith outside the church, Christians in good faith, who are doing this. So how much more is the onus on us to do this? Since we believe in the words of the Council that the entirety of the truth subsists in the Catholic Church. 
the entirety of the truth. It subsists in it and it astonishes us with its teaching, its authority, its wisdom, its power to save. I would suggest that Robert Barron in our own church is doing that. I would suggest that. You can take a look at it. Let's veer back outside the Catholic Church. I'm very impressed by the Orthodox Jewish journalist, Harvard law graduate, Ben Shapiro. I think he's giving a tremendous witness to God, not to Christ, whom he greatly respects, but to God. He's there with his kippah, the little black Jewish cap on his head, and he's giving tremendous witness. Let's veer back into the church again. I think tremendous witness was given by Pope John Paul II. Tremendous witness by Benedict and tremendous witness by Pope Francis. He's a different style and I don't always particularly in a human sense enjoy his style. Although, as I said before, it's very recognisable. If, as I was and many of us were, you were a student in the Gregorian University in Rome in the late 80s, early 90s, when it was, I think, to my memory, heavily run by Spanish Jesuits. He's South American, but from the Hispanic world, the enormous Hispanic world. And he gives a, a, a tremendous witness. So, I, I mean, we cannot say it's not being done. The work is being done. Let's look at somebody from, like John Henry Newman. Let's look at, at somebody in that tradition, let's say, from a Christian outside the church who has come into the church, Scott Hahn, giving tremendous witness. And there are so many others. There are so many people doing absolutely spectacular work around the place. And so many people, when you hear them speak, you, you think, well, there, is there something greater than Abraham here? Do you know what I mean? Is there something here of the dust-covered rabbi, our beloved master, teaching with quiet authority, commanding the demons, commanding the waves? That's what you're called to. Now, you may not be called to do it out on street corners. Okay, you may not be called to do it there, but you are called to do it. I mean, I think a parent facing teenagers these days, there's real courage. There's real, there's real missionary spirit. A religion teacher, any teacher who has the faith, teaching kids, that takes courage. That takes witness. A teenager who has faith. Now we're sucking diesel. Because the teenage peer group is, a, it's, oh wow, I don't know if we ever have as much power over each other again. One of my great gripes with the whole woke thing is the way in which it is infantilizing a whole society. It's, with all due respect to teenagers, it's pushing adults back into the teenage years. You have a cult of youth, which is absurd. I mean, there is nothing, no talk at all of the wisdom of experience and of the tremendous consolations of getting older. All we hear of are the negatives. And then you have this strange, intensely conformist culture which draws in even the most brilliant academics. It's present in the universities above all. It emanated from the humanities faculties in the States. And it's really a kind of teenageization of a whole society with everyone being shut up on Twitter and Facebook or they'll have mean things said about them. This is crazy stuff. It's as if we can't handle life anymore. And I think the loss of faith at large is crucial to this. Man is naturally religious, homo religiosus. Man is naturally religious. And if he doesn't worship one thing, he'll worship another. 
and it's as if we have lost our nerve and retreated into a, a sort of a false glamour, a tragic glamour, entranced with the passing cherry blossom quality of youth and with all of the intensely merciless aesthetic of that youth. It's ruthless judgments, it's excommunications, all of that. And that's the most disappointing thing about the modern society, is the way in which after our abandonment of faith, we haven't embraced some sort of wisdom in, in, consistently. We're regressing. We're actually regressing. We desperately need prophets among us, but they must be true prophets. They must be true prophets. And they must speak boldly. And they must speak the words of God and not their own message. And they must expect persecution. The way of Jesus Christ, it's not the straight and narrow. That's the way it's often described. That's a childish way. The way of Jesus Christ is winding and it has a merciless gradient and it's a bad road and a broken road, a rocky road with puddles and potholes. But it's his way. It's the only way we can follow him. And we cannot follow him by shutting ourselves up in a tower and philosophizing. Was it Montaigne who did that? We don't get to do that. We have to go out. I said at the beginning of these podcasts, you know, that we, you know, the Rod Rears, the, the Benedict option, which was that we should winter quarters, as I would call it. We should regroup. There's a lot to be said for it now, mind you. We should regroup, encastellate, as it were, pitch camp and get our strength back. And, you know, we do need to do that in a sense. Then you have the Dominic option. I think it was C.C. Pecknell to put that forward in First Things. It's where, yeah, we have that contemplative aspect, but we go out to the world. And I suppose I rather maybe humorously proposed the Brendan option, which I felt was a combination of these two things, but with an added touch of, of Irish madness, which is that we simply... Uh, well, it wasn't an Irishman who said this, it was Admiral Nelson, and he was a very Englishman. Never mind manoeuvres, just go straight at him. Is that we just jump in a boat and head for America, so to speak. We just, we have to just face out. You have to witness. However you do it, you have to witness. And um, it's not easy. We're going to need each other, but we cannot do it without spending a large amount of time with the crucified and risen Lord, with our Redeemer, with our friend, with our brother, with the only one who is an expert in us. The master tradesman who has made you and is intent on saving you is the only one who knows you. He knows the entire landscape of your psyche, of your soul. He knows you completely. I remember a, a priest, a West of Ireland priest, I thought it was the most beautiful image. God knows you like a mother knows the body of her child. He knows you completely. You must spend time with him. Jesus spent an absolutely disproportionate amount of the three years of his public ministry with those few disciples. Well, he's God. And he knows what he's about, in Newman's phrase. He knew what he was doing. He spent a huge amount of time with them and he is waiting to do it with you. You have no conception of how much time he has already wasted on you and how much more he's willing to waste on you.
Now I know I'm, I'm using waste just to annoy you a bit. You have no concept of that. He's waiting for you. Go to him. Don't try to do this without him. One of the, one of the greatest jokes in the ministry is that we try to witness to Christ without Christ. And of course we end up, the whole thing ends up being about us. And it, it founders. It ends up so badly and you could end up upon a cross without even actually having been Christ. It's an awful thing to be martyred when you don't believe in the first place. I mean, what's that about? I remember reading somewhere, was it, was it Hilary Mantel, The Place of Greater Safety? I can't remember. I don't know if this is true, but it's a good story is that during the revolution at the height of the terror in France, it wasn't unknown for people to commit suicide by waiting until a patrol passed and shouting, God save the king, as they, <laughs> as they passed. And of course you'd be dead within 24 hours. You try to do this without Christ, it's absolutely crazy. But we try to do this without him. You end up being martyred when you're not even witnessing to him properly in the first place. Crikey, that's an awful joke. Go to him and ask him for the strength to witness to him. And not your words, but his. Not your will, but his. To be him. That your hands be his hands. Your voice be his voice. To teach with authority. To astonish those around you with the life-giving power with which you speak and to warn off the very powers of hell. That's what you're being called to do. I would feel very much in this gospel. And look, I mean, I've talked before about how badly prepared we are for this. There's no point worrying about it now. We're going to have to, what's left, I mean, I was 58 a few days ago. So, you know, I don't have forever. I've already had a bad stroke. And that certainly gives you a sense that if you didn't have it before, the fact that you will most assuredly, you know, you'll die. Eventually, something will kill me as it does as, as something does us all. And if I can talk like this, and if I'm trying to acquire new skills, those of you listening to this who are in your late teens or 20s or 30s, for God's sake, don't embarrass yourselves. You have everything going for you. The whole world is against you and you have everything going for you. Think about that for a while. You can chew on that for a while. The whole world is against you and you have it all. But you must sit at his feet. You must be taught. We are just going to have to do this on the hoof. The days of our grandeur are over where we could take years preparing people. I would venture to say now that in a very short time, seminarians will be sent out, and not on bits and pieces of social work, but seminarians will be sent out on active discipleship after a few years, after a year or two, you know? That'll be a part of the training, insofar as it's not happening in ways already. We're just going to have to learn this on the hoof. So I'm going to leave you with those stunning bits of wisdom that you can take with you from this. To meet with the Christ of power, the God of power, because a powerless God is no use to you. He'll just make nice sounds while you drown. This is the God who can give you life. And then to realize that that God of power, that power is infused with absolute and unconquerable and inexhaustible love. Start spending time with him if you're not doing it already. Let him prepare you for what you have to do. As they say in Irish, God bless the work. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.